It really is our desire this morning, and really every time we come together, is to have a fuller understanding, to have a fuller view, to have a fuller perspective of who God is. Because as our perspective of God, as our understanding of God grows and is more clearly clarified, uh, then we're able to respond in the worship of God. In fact, there's a kind of a direct correlation between the worship of God and our understanding of God. And as we understand and we are able to respond to him for who he actually is. Um, before I jump into the sermon here this morning, I want to highlight something. You might have been a little confused when you walked into the sanctuary and said, oh, we must have run out of brown paper. Uh, no, we did not run out of brown paper. We used up the brown paper and never to go back. And thank you, Gina, right there. Can I just highlight you, Gina? Can you just stand up? Yeah, you should just stand up. So, Gina, yeah, okay, she, she slipped up her hand, everybody. We got a picture of you actually right here that we're just, no, just kidding. But she actually is, uh, you know, what I love about how God has blessed our church in one of the many ways, just the, the, the front office ladies, they're, they're always thinking about how could we make this more efficient or just a little bit better. And one of that was just the bulletin. And there's a, our old bulletin was very text heavy. Maybe some of you noticed that. Maybe some of you love that. Um, but this is a little more visually stimulating, I think. And uh, we're very excited about kind of giving you what you actually need um, as far as weekly calendar. There will be no more inserts, like papers flying around everywhere. You know what I'm talking about. You open up your bulletin, it all dumps out. That's not going to happen anymore because we're not going to put anything in there, I think. And then... Um, and, uh, and, so, and also, you'll also notice that the reading plan is right there in your bulletin as well. So I don't know if you've been kind of going through the Psalms with me this week, the last couple of weeks, but it's been rich for me. And perhaps, if you have been, you've already read the text for this morning. And so that's the intention that you would go, we're going through the Psalms right now, and then on Saturday you would read through the text prior to coming in on a Sunday morning. And so anyways, thank you Gina for all your hard work on that. We want to serve you, we want to make you most aware uh, as to the many different things that are going on in our church, and we want to make sure that, again, there's no ambiguity in that regard. So that being said, let's jump into our sermon here this morning. You know, there's a, I don't always like to do this, but it seems you might be going, Aaron likes to make reference to a lot of movies. Um, I'm not a movie junkie, but, you know, again, I grew up in 21st century Western context, and so I do like movies. One movie that I loved as a kid growing up because of the adventure and it always made me want to be an archaeologist was Indiana Jones. Loved Indiana Jones. I was like, man, I want to be like Indiana, ride the horse. I've always wanted to go to Petra, ever seeing Indiana Jones and the Last Crusade. I've always wanted to be like, I want to go to that place. We almost went this year on the Israel trip. Didn't quite happen. That's okay. Someday maybe. But... The fact is, like, I loved it because I loved the adventure. I loved all the, you know, the good versus evil like most movies have. You might recall, if you had seen that, the, the Last Crusade, the third part uh, in that trilogy, uh, where there's a scene where Indiana's finally kind of in Petra. He's in the cave. He crosses kind of the, the, the walk of faith, so to speak. He comes into this room, and there's a, this old crusader who's been there for, I don't know, five, seven hundred years, um, somehow was able to live. And, um, and basically, he has to choose this cup. And this crusader says, yes, you have to choose a cup if you want eternal life, but choose wisely because depending on what you choose is a, is a difference between life and death. 
And of course, as you've, if you've seen the movie, you've seen the Nazi guy goes, aha, I'm going to get the first one. I want that eternal life. And so he's like, picks this really royal golden goblet, fills it up from the, the water source, drinks it, and he says, eternal life, Dr. Jones. Drinks it. And if you've seen the movie, I won't describe it to you, but um, he dies. Uh, <laughs> in fact, the crusader uh, very uh, subtly says, he chose poorly. And uh, kind of an understatement, I understand. But Indiana Jones, he kind of he looks and goes, wait a second, Jesus was a carpenter. He wasn't a, a man of royalty necessarily. He came as a humble servant. And so he looks through all the, the goblet options and he finds this kind of this ordinary uh, uh, cup that you would probably look, not even consider as anything as important. And he says, this has got to be the cup of Christ. And as it turns out, it is the correct choice. He saves his father. It's a happy ending. But the point is this. He had to make a choice. He had to make a choice, and depending on the choice he made, it was the difference between life or death. We see that Jesus confronts the Pharisees in our text this morning with a very similar, in fact, a more profound, a more critical choice to make. We see that Jesus confronts the Pharisees, that, in other words, he, he kind of... He, he confronts them with the truth so that they are forced to make a decision about who Jesus is. They, they are forced to, to make a choice as to whether or not they will follow Jesus or they will reject Jesus. In fact, when you, when you survey the Gospel of Matthew as we've been going through, we see that everything Jesus taught, everything that Jesus preached, everything that Jesus did pointed to one profound truth, and that truth is this, that Jesus is the sovereign king. Everything he did, everything he taught, in a sense, all was directed or was pointed back to himself. He's like, this is who I am. I'm declaring who I am. I didn't come as a conquering king. I came as a humble servant. But everything I do, everything I say, points to the long-awaited promise that I am the Messiah. I am the anointed one from God. I am your savior. I am your deliverer. And that really kind of resonates with our theme this morning. The theme being that because Jesus is our sovereign king, that truth demands a response from us all. Because Jesus is our sovereign king, that demands a response from each and every one of us in here. This means that because Jesus shows, because he proves that he is the long-awaited Messiah, that he is the king over all creation, there can be no neutrality about Jesus. Either you are for him or you are against him. Either you surrender to his rule and his lordship or you reject him. And of course, the choice that you make about Jesus, how you respond to this truth is the difference between eternal life and eternal death. So let's read our text here this morning. And as a result of our text, let's make some observations. If you might recall, we, we learned how to study the Bible, right? As we read a text, we want to make careful observations so we can make accurate interpretation, and then we can make appropriate application. So right now, we're going to read the text, and then we're going to make some careful observations Read along with me here, starting in verse 
22 of Matthew chapter 12. I'm reading out of the New Living Translation, by the way. I study from the ESV or the NIV sometimes, sometimes the NASB, but when I read to you, I read out of the NLT. And the reason for that, I feel like it's much more easy to receive. It's, it's, it flows really easy. So if you're wondering why your text seems different, it's because I'm reading from the New Living Translation. Let's read along or listen along. Verse 22, then a demon-possessed man who was blind and could not speak was brought to Jesus. He healed the man so that he could both speak and see. And the crowd was amazed and asked, could it be that Jesus is the son of David, the Messiah? But when the Pharisees heard about this miracle, they said, no wonder he can cast out demons. He gets his power from Satan, the prince of demons. Well, Jesus knew their thoughts and replied, any kingdom divided by civil war is doomed. A town or a family splintered by feuding will fall apart. And if Satan is casting out Satan, he is divided and fighting against himself. His own kingdom will not survive. And if I am empowered by Satan, what about your own exorcists? They cast out demons too, so they will so they will condemn you for what you have said. But if I am casting out demons by the Spirit of God, then the kingdom of God has arrived among you. For who is powerful enough to enter the house of a strong man and plunder his goods? Only someone even stronger, someone who could tie him up and then plunder his house. Anyone who isn't with me opposes me, and anyone who isn't working with me is actually working against me. So I tell you, every sin and blasphemy can be forgiven, except blasphemy against the Holy Spirit, which will never be forgiven. Anyone who speaks against the Son of Man can be forgiven, but anyone who speaks against the Holy Spirit will never be forgiven, either in this world or in the world to come. I don't know who started it. I don't even know why it even has a label. But at least when you look historically, there's this thing called the big lie. And someone put some language to it or gave it a label, but basically people or dictators or rulers have been adopting this big lie uh, for generations, thousands and thousands of years. The big lie is basically this. It's a, it's a manipulative lie to achieve a self-serving outcome. The big lie means that you repeat something, you repeat a lie loud enough, and you repeat a lie long enough, and then guess what? People will believe you. We see that Nero did this. You know, when, when Rome caught on fire and just caused, basically burned the city of Rome down, Nero did not want to take responsibility for that, so guess what he did? He created a lie. The Christians are responsible for this. That's what led to a mass persecution of the Christians. We see that Hitler did the same thing, right? Is, uh, excuse me, Germany after World War I was in kind of the financial froze of, uh, of struggle, and, and so in order to kind of rebound the economy, he says, you know what, who's responsible for our hardships and our struggles? The Jews. 
And when you repeat a lie long enough and loud enough, people begin to believe it. We see that media and politicians probably do this today to advance their own biased agenda. And on our text this morning, it's no different. You see, the Pharisees are no different. They attempt to undermine the person of Jesus as well as they attempt to undermine the message of Jesus by planting lies in the minds of people. Saying things like this, he cast out demons by the prince of demons. That was Matthew chapter nine. Here in Matthew chapter 12, again, it is only by Beelzebub, the prince of demons, or Satan, that this man casts out demons. Remember, Jesus has healed or he's cast out demons multiple times. This isn't the first time that Jesus has uh, literally delivered somebody from the strongholds of the enemy. But the response is basically the same. Every time he heals somebody, especially when he casts out demons, things that others were completely powerless to do, there's two normal responses. The first response is by the normal people. They, are, they respond really in amazement. They're astounded by what they're seeing here. They're like, this is a guy who's been in bondage. He's been mute. He's been blind. He can't, he can't do anything. And now all of a sudden he can see and he can talk. This is incredible. Could this be the son of David? Could this be the long-awaited Messiah that was prophesied about? We see a similar response from the Pharisees as well. On the Pharisees, on the other hand, they ridicule Jesus and speak all kinds of lies about who he is and, and how he is able to do what he's able to do. And no doubt because the more Jesus taught and the more Jesus performed miracles and healing people, the more people that began to follow him. Again, the, the crowds were growing as a result of Jesus' ministry. And at the same time, the Pharisees continued to lose their power and lose their influence over the people. Once again, as a legalist, you will always struggle. You will always have a hostility towards people that take your influence away. Kind of a practical observation. When you kind of look at how the Pharisees are responding, you might go, I can't believe they do that. And yet, as I reflected on it, I realized I do that. How many of us in here, in a moment of anger or hurt, have said things and done things that are simply not true? How many of us have, have embellished what the actions of others out of our own pain or anger? And we've defamed or uh, thrown under the bus, so to speak, the reputation of another because of our own insecurity or our own hurt or our own anger. So in a sense, we can identify with the Pharisees. In one sense, we could probably say, oh, I'm kind of guilty of the similar kind of action. It doesn't make it right. It just means you go, oh, my flesh is like their flesh. Well, Jesus responds to their accusations really by exposing the absurdity of their claims and he responds to their claims with a, really a, you know, with a response of questions, right? This was very typical of Jesus' ministry. People ask him a question to manipulate him or to trick him and Jesus says, that's an interesting question. Let me ask you another question in response. 
In this case, they make actual statements or claims or accusations against him, and he responds again with questions. The first question basically saying this, how can I cast out demons by the power of demons? That would mean that Satan is fighting against himself and destroying his own work. As he says, no no kingdom divided against itself can ever stand. So how can I, in the power of Satan, cast out or undermine what Satan is doing? The second question Jesus responds to is, if I, Jesus, cast out demons by Satan's power, then in what power do your sons cast out demons? Because the Pharisees were under the impression that they had people in their camp that were also able to cast out demons. Even uh, uh, it's historically at least accounted that there was some ability for some people to cast out demons. However true it was, I don't know. Were they saved? Were they empowered by the Spirit? We don't know. But Jesus does say in Matthew 7 that those who are unsaved, those whose name are not written in the book of life, are also likewise able to do miraculous things. Remember the sobering warning in Matthew 7. Jesus says, not everyone who calls to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. Only those who actually do the will of my Father in heaven will enter. On judgment day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, we prophesied in your name. We cast out demons in your name. We perform many miracles in your name. And I will reply, I never knew you. Get away from me, you who break the laws. So the questions that Jesus raises here, the question he specifically raises here is, how can the Pharisees accuse Jesus of being empowered by Satan to cast out demons, but their own followers just so happen to be empowered by God to do the same thing? It makes no sense. Jesus, in a sense, is trying to expose the absurdity of their accusations. But in so doing, he really comes to kind of, he really, he establishes five logical conclusions. Not that everything has to be logically, you know, uh, labeled. Not that everything has to start from one and, and gradually flow to a, 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 an end that is understandable. But Jesus exposes the absurdity of their claims and then kind of goes, let's, let's, kind of like, let's just kind of work down in line here because Jesus has a very uh, um, necessary goal that he's trying to establish in the hearts and minds of these religious leaders. The first logical conclusion, if you're following along in your notes, you can fill the blanks in. If Jesus does not cast out demons by the power of Satan, then the only alternative is that he cast out demons by the power of God. In other words, I can't cast out demons by the power of Satan because that's crazy. That's not even logical. That can't even happen. So Jesus kind of brings them to this point. If I don't cast out demons by the power of Satan, then the only alternative is that I cast out demons by the power of God. And the second conclusion follows. Casting out demons by the power of God means that the kingdom has come upon you. If Jesus is doing his work, if he is healing people, if he is performing the work of his Father by the power of the Spirit, then it also means, as Jesus teaches us, that the the kingdom of God has come upon you. 
That phrase has come is in the present tense. It's not just something that is just a future anticipation, but has come is in the present tense, which means that the kingdom of God is a present reality. And it is a present reality because Jesus is a present reality. The coming of Jesus inaugurates, initiates the kingdom of God. Third logical conclusion then. If the kingdom of God has come because Jesus has come, then Jesus must be king. If Jesus does everything by the power of God, and that means that the kingdom of God has come, and it has come through the present reality of Jesus, then that means Jesus must be king. He must be the Messiah. He must be the anointed one from God. In fact, Jesus even gives a a parabolic illustration to kind of bring us to our fourth conclusion, right? He says, who is powerful enough to enter a house of a strong man and plunder his goods? Well, only someone who is stronger. Someone who could tie him up and, and plunder his house. The strong man in this illustration that Jesus gives is really a reference to Satan. It's the kingdom of Satan. It's the realm that Satan has access and liberty to to perform what he does, to influence as he does. And the one who binds the strong man is Jesus. Point being, the one who is stronger than Satan is here. The one who is more powerful than the kingdom of darkness is here. The one who is able to make all wrong things right is here. The one who is able to heal is here. This isn't just a pie in the sky hope anticipation. Jesus says no, it is now because I am here. This is who I am. And you might notice the language here. This illustration isn't just kind of a, an extreme illustration to prove, to prove a simple point. You notice that the, the language here is that Jesus is not tiptoeing into Satan's kingdom here going, hey, let's just kind of slip in. I'll grab a few things and I'll leave without him knowing. No, Jesus is coming in by force. Jesus isn't coming. He's, he's binding the strong man. He's like, no, enough is enough. You've had a heyday. You've had enough rain. You've influenced and killed too many people. You've wreaked too much havoc in the lives of people. Enough is enough. And Jesus, by his very presence and by his redemptive plan through, the, through his, basically by the Father, is going, I'm binding the strong man. We're done with this, and I'm making all things new. I'm making things right again. His kingdom is advancing by force. But all these questions and all these logical conclusions that Jesus is establishing here is really intended to lead us to one final conclusion. A conclusion that we must all not only reflect upon, but a conclusion that we must respond to. You see, that's the difference between the teaching of Jesus and the, the preaching of Jesus. That's the difference between teaching and preaching in general, actually. Teaching is, uh, is, focuses on instruction. Teaching focuses on content. All preaching includes teaching, but the difference is preaching focuses on application. Preaching uh, demands a response. 
It's like you now know what the truth is, and now you are called to make a decision because of this truth you now know. So now Jesus is switching gears here. He's saying, yeah, here's the logical conclusions. Here's what we know. Here's what we understand about who I am. Now it's time to make a choice. So Jesus responds or he transitions into kind of preaching mode here and confronts us with a decision to make. He says in verse 30, anyone who isn't with me opposes me. And anyone who isn't working with me is actually working against me. The point is, because Jesus is king and his rule is being established by force, then you are forced to make a decision about him. As I kind of communicated in the beginning of my sermon, either you are for him or you are against him. But there is no neutrality about Jesus. You cannot remain indifferent about Jesus because if you are not for him, then you are opposed to him. Those are the only two options. Even Jesus says back in Matthew 10, you might recall, whoever loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. And whoever loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. And whoever does not take up his cross and follow me is not worthy of me. The bottom line is this. You must all, we must all, make a decision about Jesus. Because we now know who he is, because Jesus by his life, by his message, by his, by his, by his doing, by his performance of miracles, casting out demons, raising the dead, making the lame walk, all these things all point to this one true reality, this one fact that Jesus is not an ordinary common man, but he is king of kings and he is lord of lords. He is God incarnate, God in human flesh. And yes, he did come as a humble servant. He came as the sacrificial lamb. But because of his message and because of his works, we know who he is. Because we know also in his second return he comes as the conquering king. And because we know who Jesus is, you and I have a choice to make. But be forewarned. Whatever decision you make about Jesus has eternal consequences. This is not a decision we take lightly. In fact, in the midst of the thousands and millions of decisions we make daily, weekly, annually, this is the most important decision you'll make in your life. Jesus says, I tell you, every sin and blasphemy can be forgiven except blasphemy against the Holy Spirit, which will never be forgiven. Anyone who speaks against the Son of Man can be forgiven, but anyone who speaks against the Holy Spirit will never be forgiven, either in this world or in the world to come. I'm not sure how familiar you are with scripture, but this is classically known as the unpardonable sin or the unforgivable sin. And it's really intended to act as a a kind of an alarm. It's intended to be kind of a sobering, like, oh, you got my attention 
message. To think that, for example, there is a sin that is unforgivable. To think that there's a sin that keeps us from being saved. I mean, didn't Jesus die for all sin? Yes, he did. But there is a choice that is actually unforgivable. There is a choice that has 100% certainty of eternal damnation attached to it. What is this sin? Perhaps you're asking. What is the unforgivable sin that Jesus references here? He says it's called blasphemy against the spirit. Now blasphemy can be understood as a, it's really a means to slander, it's to speak against. When you blasphemy, you are speaking against, you are either gossiping about, you are talking negatively about. You, again, basically you're, you're not encouraging, it's the opposite of supporting someone, it's going, you know what, here's basically why they're not a great person. Here's why I don't like that person. Here's why I'm rejecting that person. The irony is that Jesus says blasphemy, speaking slander, speaking against the son is actually forgivable. Kind of interesting. Jesus says blasphemy against the son is forgivable, meaning that someone who speaks against Jesus can still be forgiven of their sin. That's good news actually because remember Peter? Remember Peter? Jesus is on his way to be crucified and guess what? Peter, one of his closest companions, he's gone to the inner three, right? He denies Jesus three times. I don't know that guy. I have no part of that guy. And then the rooster crows, and he's distraught over his own cowardice. Even Paul himself says in 1 Timothy that he used to be a blasphemer of Jesus unknowingly, but was later shown grace that led him to repentance. The fact is, in a a very real way, we're all guilty of blasphemy against the Son. We're all guilty of blasphemy against Jesus when we sin because Jesus says forgiveness is always available, even for actions such as this. But blasphemy against the Spirit is not forgivable. You can blaspheme against the Son and still receive the forgiveness of that, but you cannot blaspheme, you cannot slander the Holy Spirit. Why? Here's the point, because the spirit of God convicts the world of sin. The spirit of God convicts the world of sin and this conviction leads us to repentance that results in forgiveness. Are you following? You cannot blaspheme or slander or reject the Holy Spirit because when you reject the Holy Spirit, you reject the conviction that God gives us through his Spirit. And if we reject the conviction that God gives us through his Spirit, then we no longer enter into a place of repentance and there can be no forgiveness without repentance. That's why Jesus says in his message, really his whole ministry is summarized in one statement, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. You want to have a right relationship with God? You want to be reconciled with God? You want your sins forgiven? Guess what you need to do? Repent. Repentance changes everything. But when we blaspheme or slander or reject the Spirit, what we are ultimately doing is we are rejecting repentance and therefore forgiveness. D.A. Carson says it this way. The distinction between blasphemy against the Son of Man and blasphemy against the Spirit is not that the Son of Man is less important than the Spirit. Instead, 
The first sin is rejection of the truth of the gospel. And there may be repentance and forgiveness for that. Whereas the second sin, the blasphemy against the spirit, is rejection of that same truth, but in full awareness that that is exactly what one is doing. Thoughtfully, willfully, and self-consciously rejecting the work of the spirit even though there can be no other explanation of Jesus' exorcism than that. You see, what the, the, the Pharisees were guilty of, what Jesus was exposing is, is like, everything I do, you cannot hide. You cannot turn a blind eye. It's, it's right in front of you. Everything I do in front of you has only one conclusion, that I am king. And you know that, and yet you still reject that. It's plain to everyone else. They're astounded. They're beginning to be wooed. Could this be the son of David? Could this be the Messiah? And the Pharisees, in their hardness of hearts, even though it's undeniable, are saying, no. That's why in pride, you will never accept Jesus. In pride, you will never surrender to Jesus. That's why repentance is only by way of humility. Blasphemy is unforgivable because someone's heart is so hardened that even though they know the truth, they willfully oppose that truth that is given by the Spirit of God. One commentator even said it this way. He's like, you know, all kinds of sin, all kinds of criminal sins can be forgiven. The the adulterer, the thief, the murderer, there is hope for that person. The message of the gospel says it helps them cry out, oh God, be merciful to me, a sinner. But when someone's heart is hardened so that he or she has made up their mind to not pay any attention to the promptings of the Spirit, even listen to the pleading and warning voice, he or she has placed himself on the road that leads to perdition. They have sinned the sin unto death. You know, Paul actually speaks to this in Romans chapter one. I had a long passage I'm gonna read for you and I just want you to listen. Paul speaks of this in his first chapter in the book of Romans, starting in verse 18. He says, but God shows his anger from heaven against all sinful, wicked people who suppress the truth by their wickedness. They know the truth about God because it has been made obvious to them. For ever since the world was created, people have seen the earth and the sky. Through everything God made, they can clearly see his invisible qualities, his eternal power and divine nature. So they have no excuse for not knowing God. Yes, they knew God, but they didn't worship him as God or even give him thanks. And they began to think of of foolish ideas of what God was like. Paul goes on to say in verse 24, so God abandoned them to do whatever shameful things their hearts desired. And as a result, they did vile and degrading things with each other's bodies. They traded the truth about God for a lie. So they worshiped and they served the the things God created because because of the creator himself who is worthy of eternal praise. That is why God abandoned them to their shameful desires. Even the women turned against the natural way to have sex and in, instead indulge in sex with each other. And the men, instead of having normal sexual relations with women, burned with lust for each other. 
Men did shameful things with other men as, and as a result of their sin, they suffered within themselves the penalty they deserved. Since they thought it foolish to acknowledge God, he abandoned them to their foolish thinking and let them do things that should never be done. Their lives became full of every kind of wickedness and sin and greed and hate and envy and murder and quarreling and deception and malicious behavior and gossip. They are backstabbers, haters of God, insolent, proud, boastful. They invent new ways of sinning and they disobey their parents. They refuse to understand. They break their promise. They are heartless and they have no mercy. They know God's justice requires that those who do these things deserve to die, yet they do them anyway. Worse yet, they encourage others to do them too. What is blasphemy against the Spirit? Someone who has been confronted with the truth and says no. There can be no forgiveness for that kind of sin because you have rejected the, you've rejected the invitation to come to repent and be forgiven. Jesus died for all the sins of the world, but if you reject his forgiveness, then you cannot stand before God redeemed. You cannot stand before God cleansed. You are still alienated from the righteousness and the acceptance and the peace and the grace and the mercy that God gives. Persistent rejection leads to unforgiveness because there can be no forgiveness without repentance. Now you might be wondering to yourself, perhaps, am I guilty of this sin? Am, am I, is this true of me? And let me just kind of calm your nerves here for a second. If you are at all concerned that you are guilty of this sin, it just reveals that you are not. Because a person that is characterized in this description doesn't care. They know the truth and they are rejecting the truth. They know what is right and they choose to ignore it. They choose to do their own things. They choose to do what is right in their own eyes. So if you are at all concerned that have I, am I guilty of this? Is this true of me? Then don't be unnecessarily alarmed because that concern only reveals that it's, you're probably not guilty of it. At the same time, it is given as an alarm. It is given as a as a, a, a truth that we are to reflect on going, how do I know I'm right with God? It's why Paul says in Philippians 2, like, you must work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. Not that you're working for your salvation, but you must prove to yourself, you must continue to remind yourself, this is how I know I am right with God. We'll be speaking to that more next week. But I do want to give you a kind of a, a friendly warning And that is this, we should never label anyone as having committed this sin. Not because they don't, but on this side of eternity, we do not know the hearts of people. You don't know people's hearts. In fact, I am amazed over and over again. In fact, I'm amazed that I'm amazed 
that I'm always surprised that when I go, man, this person is so far gone, and then all of a sudden they're in church next year and they love Jesus, and you're like, what happened to you? And as we know, Jesus happened. They, co- they were confronted with truth and life, and the Spirit of God brought conviction, and they repented. It's like the city of Nineveh repenting. What? You're kidding me. God showed grace to those people? Yeah. So may we never be guilty of pointing the finger of fault and saying, oh yeah, they, they're never gonna change. No, no, you don't know what God is doing in people's hearts. And so therefore we perceive, we see, we, we think about everyone, we regard everyone as if God is actively working in their heart, even though all their actions may prove otherwise. Even though everything in their life says they want nothing, they're giving God the stiff arm, they're giving God the Heisman. No. We go, God, you're able to do anything. And we believe that repentance is still possible. Why they have breath in their lungs, there is hope. Why their heart beats, there is time. That doesn't mean we sit idly by going, man, I just hope someday they turn back to Jesus. No, we have work to do. We are commissioned by God. We are his ambassadors. God is making his appeal through us, but may we never disregard or give up on anyone, regardless of all the actions that prove otherwise. But the question that Jesus confronts the Pharisees and the question that he confronts you and me this morning is this. What decision have you made about Jesus? More specifically, have you surrendered to Jesus Christ? Just because you're sitting here at church this morning doesn't mean that's true. Or maybe contrary, have you, have you kept Jesus at arm's length? Have you kept him in a predictable relationship where you, you invite him in on your terms? Josh McDowell, he wrote a book, which I know many of you are aware of. The book is called More Than a Carpenter. It's kind of a classic apologetic book. It really kind of stems off of C.S. Lewis and some of his writings. But in this book, More Than a Carpenter, he just kind of lays it out. And he says, basically, there's kind of three options here. Jesus is either Lord, or he's a liar, or he's a lunatic, and if he's a liar, in other words, if he's a pathological liar because he's making all these crazy claims about himself and it's not really true, then, of course, why would you follow him? And if he's a lunatic, a crazy man, then you would be even more foolish to follow him. But if he's Lord, if he is who he says he is, then he demands your allegiance. And the only appropriate response as a response of surrender. But the beauty of that surrender is Jesus would say, he who loses his life actually gains it. But he who finds his life loses it. So the question I have for you once again is, what decision have you made about Jesus? This morning we're not gonna have a closing song but I don't want to just dismiss us 
too quickly. And so we're gonna actually go into just a time of reflection right now. And I'm just gonna give you a few moments because perhaps some of you are sitting here going, I know I'm right with God. As Paul says, I've worked, I'm working out my salvation with fear and trembling and I, and I have absolute assurance. I have no doubt whatsoever that my name is written in the book of life. And that's wonderful. That's what God wants. John says, I write these things to you that you may know you have eternal life. But there may be some of you who have been playing Christianity and who have maybe never, ever surrendered. You might even be convinced that you are a Christian. And the question is, how do you know? So we're going to take some time just to let the Spirit of God work in our hearts. And it's just, we're just going to have some background music. I just want you to take this time to pray. Perhaps the Spirit of God is moving in your heart right now. Perhaps he's speaking to you something about something related to this or something specific to this. Whatever it is, take the time to listen. And don't just listen, but respond.